Okay, so it's a party. Yes. But about TV. Yes. Join us every Monday for TV Party, where we'll talk about the news of the moment, the best episodes of the week, and what we can't wait to find sitting on our DVRs. We'll also chat with actors, writers, and experts about TV, elect classic characters to our Hall of Faces, deep dive into full seasons of some great shows, and more. Find us at Consequence of Sound, iTunes, or wherever you procure fine podcasts. Oh, Clint, one more thing. Is it open bar? It's BYO. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to episode three of season two of Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this show on the Consequence Podcast Network, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for nearly 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canon albums of first release material to see who they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them, because everything is subjective. Discography can be a pretty personal journey, so you should know that up front. But hey, let's jump right in. That's right, Janet Jackson, singer, songwriter, dancer, actress, household name, one of the biggest stars the Western world has ever known. And though she sold over 100 million records worldwide, few have really poured through her canonical albums to see how it all stacks up. Janet changed the face of pop culture numerous times over, yet she's more commonly known for the gossip and the tabloid fodder that seems to follow her family at every single step. And have you played these records? Because that's just unfair. In our first two episodes of this season, we took a deep dive into Janet's first five albums, which can range from pleasant pop sundries to genre-defining experiments. And here's a few things you should know about how we're going to do and how we are doing this overview. First off, it's no secret that Janet is likely best known all the way around for her music videos, but I'm trying my best to look only at her actual albums without really taking those so much into account. It's my hope, though, that we're going to avoid looking at Janet through the lens of how she compares to her brother and the rest of her family, at least when I'm talking about her. You see, it was my aim here with this season of discography that I would try to see Janet Jackson as only a standalone artist. And I'll personally only be bringing up the Jackson family when it's incredibly pertinent and unavoidable. And that aforementioned gossip, I'm mostly not taking it into account either, but there is one thing that had a massive effect on the musical output, and we're going to have to talk about it. And we're going to do it in this episode, and I'm sorry, but it's unavoidable, and you'll see. Anyways... Folks, I came into Janet Jackson's albums completely green and wet behind the ears for this season. And it occurred to me that since about 75% of my opinions about Janet's records are things I'd only recently taken in for the first time, I wouldn't have much of a chance to allow these albums to even try to stand the test of time. Now, you could say that this makes me relatively impartial, But I thought it'd be fair to have a lifelong Jacksons fanatic on the show with me, not to mention a voice from the black community. So I brought my friend Captain Chris. That's right, Captain Chris. He is a DJ on WPRK FM in Orlando, Florida, the very best in basement radio. He's also in the group Crystal Brains Campaign and Universal Funk Orchestra. I got it right, right? Yep. Universal Funk Orchestra. Universal Funk Orchestra and Crystal Brains Campaign. And you're back 
three weeks in a row with me here doing this Janet thing. So it, let's pretend the chronology doesn't exist now. Okay. We're kicking off episode three here. We might have new listeners. We might have listeners who checked out and didn't hear episode two. I've had you on the show for a number of reasons, but also to get a voice from someone who really grew up on these records where I was coming into them now trying to make sense of a career that was so omnipresent that I almost ceased to think of her as an artist. Just seems like someone who's part of the wallpaper or something. So when you revisited everything, was there anything that jumped out at you where you went, I did not expect this thing to be so rewarding this far down the line? Um, believe it or not, re-listening to Control and Rhythm Nation, more so than most of the stuff, like, you know, everybody always says it takes me back. What it did was it finally showed me what it was, because when you first hear the album, I was a kid, you're listening through kid ears. Now it's sort of like, I'm an adult, I play a lot of music, I have more of a, I guess, a better ear for these things, so I really focus down on production and just, you know, just the way they put those things together. Jam and Lewis and Jackson, that team of people, like, on those two albums, really... I I don't even want to say state-of-the-art production of the time, but the tools they were given, you know? Oh, it was up to the second, for sure. Up to the second. And it's, it's crazy, you know, like, when you know the trajectory of Jam and Lewis, how they get to that point, and from Janet's trajectory, how she gets to that point, how they all meet up at, you know, at the perfect time to create those two perfect records. And up until episode three, we have covered... Janet's first two records. The first one was self-titled. The second one was called Dream Street. Then the big blockbusters like Control, Rhythm Nation. One that's just called Janet, period. And of course, The Velvet Rope. Today, we're going to kick it off talking about her 2001 album, All For You. All my girls at the party, look at that body, shaking that thing like you never did see. Got a nice package, all right, cause I'm going to have to ride it tonight. All my girls at the party, look So yes, in 2001, Janet Jackson releases All For You, her first album since separating from her main squeeze, Renee Elizondo Jr. And understandably, a divorce doesn't leave you feeling too hot, but rather than continue on with, I don't know, what did we expect, the Velvet Rope 2 even velvetier? Janet instead decided to go in a rather optimistic direction, but that's not all she did with this album. Not by a long shot. In fact, this is probably the album that I might consider recommending to a complete newcomer, because there's a little bit of all that Janet has done up until this point. And it does sound a little bit more modern than, say, Control, best exemplified by just how many albums and artists have clearly been influenced by the Jam Lewis Jackson production team by this point, but I'm getting way ahead of myself here. There's about a minute of studio giggling before the song You Ain't Right Roundhouse kicks you with one of the most scathing takes on a former associate this side of Queen's Death on Two Legs. are thicker and they're stomping directly in your ears. The subdued and sensual feel of the last album? Bah, that was yesterday's love, clearly. And just because it's 
followed up by the title track, which if you've never heard the song, I'd like to welcome you to Planet Earth, and I really hope that you'll be enjoying your stay. The title track of Janet Jackson's All For You seems to just be a brainless bit of early 2000s disco, yet lyrically, Janet, she's checking out packages and crotches, so sure, the skin shedding of the recent albums is still a thing, but now they're coming with stadium-sized hooks again. Though just those opening tracks, well, they do sound a little different, right? And not just because this is a new album, a new sovereign nation full of ideas and beliefs with a beginning and an end and tempos and new do-do-do keyboards on You Ain't Right. Well, there's a new producer in town, and that producer is Rockwilder, also known as Dana Stinson. You may know their production work from Organized Confusion, Jay-Z's Do It Again, that remake of Lady Marmalade. I mean... This is nothing to thumb your nose at. Janet's ready to branch out and try new things, and just the night and day difference between the first two tracks alone explains the slight personality crisis going on here. Jam and Lewis traditionally bring the best out of Janet, but who wants to get old and stale? You have to try out a new avenue once in a while, right? This album, it's full of them. But you gotta dig a little bit. It's not so apparent on the surface. So as soon as you get out of the title track, you're deposited right into another Rockwilder jam with Come On Get Up. Now I should specify that even when Rockwilder is listed as a songwriter or co-producer, it's done so right alongside Jamin Lewis. And you can hear the two worlds merge in a pretty successful way with dance anthems like this, but it does seem a little bit like on-the-job training. And the tribal house beats in Come On Get Up feel like the work of the new blood in the studio, but it also brought Janet right in line with the then-current sounds of diva pop as well. But with that first 17 or so minutes out of the way, you're brought to three tracks in a row made by the traditional Jackson, Jam, and Lewis trio. And from the very first tabla in the mid-tempo track called When We Ooh, you can clearly see that everyone involved was dying for some new sounds in general. It sounds like Janet, yes, but there's some world music crispiness laid over the top, and this was pretty forward thinking at the time as even the then-reigning king of R&B, or at least one of them, R. Kelly, wouldn't incorporate those types of sounds until around 2003 with a song I can't pronounce. I've never pronounced it right. This won't be any exception, but I think it's Thoya Thoing, I think. I think that's what it's called. But beyond that, the sounds mask what's, well, a pretty okay song, but the new instruments are the most exciting developments here. But at least we can always rely on those brilliant harmonies. And in that same stack, China Love goes down a similar route, throwing in some chimes and other various drum samples that weren't commonly heard on mainstream pop records around 2001, but the composition itself is dependent on the hook for its strength. And the hook is Janet's lilting voice. Frankly, overall right now, the album so far feels a little too safe, but that's when All For You says, You sure about that? 
Because it turns out that China Love was actually there to kick off our traditional Quiet Storm, but it's doing so on side two of four vinyl sides. And the Quiet Storm traditionally goes on side four, right? So Janet's pulling the rug right out from under my expectations, knowing fully well that I am trying to do a podcast here. But there she goes with the mellow and sultry love scene, and then Rock Wilder returns, and then there's Would You Mind? The song ended. What the? I didn't even get to come. Would You Mind is what got an otherwise relatively benign album banned in Singapore again. And it's the reason that Walmart demanded a version of All For You to sell that didn't even include this song at all. To the rest of us, come on, it's why we keep listening. We want to see what Janet's going to do next. And All For You doesn't play by any previously set rules of Janet's music. We're only halfway through the album, and on my first listen, I literally had no idea where the trip was going to take me, and it's the first time since Control that I've been genuinely on the edge of my seat to see where we're headed, because, as we all know, predictability is the stepson of ingenuity. So how does Miss Jackson follow that up? Oh, with arguably the most avant-garde piece that she's dropped on us yet, a weird five-minute slice called Trust a Try. classical, hip-hop, and some vocal nods to opera. Oddly, this song, Trust to Try, is the one that I figured would have just been done for the album, like an experiment or something, and something to completely shock us into waking up as if the end of the quiet storm wasn't enough for that, but I was wrong. She dropped this tune as around the fifth song of the show every night on the massive All For You tour. Now, I gotta admit, the cover of this album kind of looked to me like a racy Kmart advertisement for blankets and mattresses, but... Tracks like Would You Mind and Trust a Try are the epitome of why you just don't judge a book by a cover. I frankly hear more influence from Trust a Try alone in popular music than half of the acts that everyone actually claims to be influenced by. The album All For You, it's the last Janet record to date to have a slew of massive hit singles, so you likely know Son of a Gun. It's cut from the same cloth as Velvet Rope's Got Till It's Gone, in that Janet uses a memorable piece of a pre-existing chorus from an already famous song, but this time she brings the original vocalist, Carly Simon, along for the ride, and instead of relegating her to the chorus, <sighs> Carly Simon raps. You tell him, Carly. Clouds of various shapes and sizes. Most guys like to evaluate their prizes. We come with so many different tricks. The apricot scarf was worn by Nick. Nothing in the words referred to Mick. This is just a fucking Bizarro World album. It's a lot of stuff we've heard variations on before, but chopped up in a food processor, garnished with a few new things, and now Janet sings lines with the word motherfucker prominently featured in the chorus. And then back to the sexy and subdued feel of the last album with songs like Truth, which comes with a bit of a chorus that you might recognize. Ooh, China, things are gonna get 
might actually get my vote for sleeper hit of the album. A nearly seven minute slow burn, there's an honesty to this one that makes me feel like this tune is really the filling in the donut, the hot dog in the bun, the marshmallows in your cereal. In other words, the truth might secretly be the point and the real centerpiece of All For You. I can tell you from experience that often, the song that artists feel the most strongly about are often songs that our audiences don't really think much about, but without those tunes, we might not have even been inspired to make a full album in the first place, and Truth feels like that kind of tune to me. But hey, there's still highlights and hits for days on All For You. There's someone to call my lover. Okay, when I say this, you're just gonna think I'm yanking your chain, but seriously? This pop R&B track samples, are you ready for this? Ventura Highway by America. Yeah, the horse with no name band. It's almost like the kind of thing you'd try to pull off when you lose a bet. And if a bet was lost, where Janet had to somehow seamlessly sample and integrate a bit of an America song into a massive worldwide hit, Janet and Jam and Lewis came out the real winners here. Not only is it one of the most instantly memorable and lovable tunes on the album, it's from that era where pretty much everyone was trying to figure out how to keep having huge hits even though Napster had just hit and everyone was buying CDRs instead of CD singles. That this song even beat those odds to make it to number three on America's Billboard charts is nothing short of astonishing, and to put that in perspective, it's the last Janet Jackson song to make it to the American Top 10 to date. If I'd have been picking the singles for All For You, I'd have understandably assumed that we were about to do like nine friggin' singles from the album, and that they each serve their own function. You gotta have the... I'm Back single, the crossover hit that even pleases people that think they aren't into what you do, the ballad that can alternately be played at homecoming dances, but also pull your heartstrings in a good way during a breakup, etc. Now all of those things happened with the four singles here, but what I think they were missing was the most obvious thing. Right, so Janet's playing around with all these new feels, but the fluffy throwback single, they didn't do one! And this is paramount in R&B singles, to always have that one song that longtime fans can point to as the quote-unquote good song on the album because they're initially reluctant to change. Me too. Feel So Right is the tune that I'd have put my money on for that purpose, but I also don't have any background in marketing bubblegum soul, so there's literally no reason anyone should have taken me up on that suggestion. I just like records. Marketing's never been my strong suit, as evidenced by the fact that you didn't know that I made records until you started listening to discography and I mentioned it. <clears throat> well... Anyways, technically there's five singles from this album, as a slightly different version of Doesn't Really Matter was in the sequel to Eddie Murphy's take on The Nutty Professor. And I suppose that technically it fills that role of the throwback single, thus rendering my last point completely moot. Nicely done, Janet. If I didn't have to finish this series, I'd just shut my damn mouth right now, but man, when you spend $2.5 million on a video for a song from a soundtrack, that's some serious faith right there. And it was well-guided faith, too, since that song hit number one in 2000. A lesser artist would have opened their album with that impossibly catchy track, but Janet, she buries it deep inside four of All For You, and that sort of says it all, really. And ditto for the fact that she closed with Better Days, a hopeful track full of strings, surf-inspired guitars, and more hooks than a coat room.
It sounds kind of like Daybreak, a first thing in the morning kind of track that you might play on your way to a job you don't like very much. Instead, it works wonders here as a closing tune, beyond the fact that there's also really nowhere else this song would have really made much sense in the track list. It's only kind of sad that the song is so relatively buried here, as it's second only to the track Truth for MVP on All For You to these ears. If All For You seems like a transitional album, it's doing its job wonderfully. Janet herself was transitioning into an assuredly happier place in her life, branching out to new sounds and a new producer, and also into a whole new phase of how records are made and consumed, by not just her ardent fans, but the world at large. That it beats these odds and shows itself to be quite the contender speaks to its biggest strengths. Deciding what kind of art you're going to make ahead of time doesn't often go very well. Remember, Tom York initially hoped to make OK Computer a very positive album too, and there's any number of pitfalls that the album could have fallen in. Meanwhile, it continues Janet's streak of redefining her own genre, and you can hear the aftershocks in works by Rihanna, Beyonce, Neo, Christina Milian, and most directly the third album by Britney Spears. Most artists don't redefine the boundaries of their own genre while being in a state of flux. And that's all the proof one needs to argue that Janet Jackson seems to be the exception to most rules that you can name. I feel like All For You is trying to tell me it's a very different record than it actually is. How do you feel about it? Almost like if the Velvet Rope was a tumultuous sort of high or low situation for her. It, the come down wasn't a bad one. I'll, I'll put it to you like that. It's a, it's a good come down. You know, it's a it's a happy floaty sort of come down uh, all for you. So It's a morning after a good night. Yeah, so it's sort of like, all right, birds are chirping, coffee's brewing, we're, we're doing all right in life today, you know? And that's what I felt when I saw the video for All For You. And even with the more combative stuff like uh, Son of a Gun, you know, even that has a festive quality to it. Velvet rope is uh, the masterpiece it is she seemed troubled as 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 one would have picked up from any one of those songs right. on that record you throw a dart and yeah, you're like oh, Janet's not having the best week exactly Janet's not having the best like you know like few months maybe but on all for you it seems like she's in a better space you can almost tell by the like you know if album covers really dictate like, you know, how a person's feeling. It's like, you know, she's not showing her face on, like, Velvet, you know, like, at all, like, just a little bit. On this one, she's just like, I'm half naked, I'm smiling in the in the, in, in the Michael Jackson, Teddy Pendergrass stance, I'm good. Y'all you want, you wanna buy a mattress? That's <laughs> exactly. what the, the cover of All For You <laughs> says, like, like <laughs> come to Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> Are you attached to this fur rug I got wrapped around me, you know? <laughs> If music dictates, it seems like she was in a good space, and the music really represents that. So what do you think the highlights of All For You are? Because besides knowing the a few singles, I think I knew Son of a Gun, yeah. and obviously who doesn't know the title track, but those, I think were about it. Oh, and I knew Doesn't Really Matter, who yeah. didn't, who had, hadn't so, heard Doesn't. So about like three big singles. I come into the rest of the record blind to do this project, and I... I couldn't put my finger on what I felt was missing. Do you feel like something's missing since you actually grew up with it? I wouldn't say that anything's missing other than the fact that, like we say, it's a come down record. So it's sort of like, like we're always looking for that one, like, 
one Janet Jackson old school punch, I think, sometimes. And on this one, like, you know, like she had, like, you know, like the singles were my ultimate favorites on this record. You know, like, I really enjoyed Son of a Gun. That was, like, my ultimate jam when this came out. Yeah, I don't know if anything's missing per se, but I do resonate with what you're saying with like something doesn't seem like you know it's fully there like it's taking you almost to where you want it to take you and then it just doesn't really quite go there but with that being said it's still damn good Janet Jackson record you know Jimmy Jam had said in a BBC documentary called Taking Control basically what you and I have said so far that it's really from Control down to All For You that's like the Holy Five uh, it's the Quintrilogy I guess yeah, you could call it trilogy. the five finger death punch of the Jackson canon for Janet those five are the records the quintessential records that you can like listen to to be like if you want to know Janet Jackson those are the records to play but she's not done. She's she still got done. a hell of a career for us to get through. No, I mean, no, no, but I was just saying, if you want to ingratiate yourself into the life of Janet Jackson, those are the five records, and then now you are fully ready to jump on the train with whatever else she's giving you down the line, I feel. And what Jimmy Jam also said in that same breath was that if you want to know anything about Janet as a person, listen to the records. Exactly. It's all there. Now, in researching this project, I found that there are interviews out there, but they're also a little bit canned. Like, she's clearly been given yeah. the questions way ahead of time. These are well-rehearsed answers. Not saying anything that could even be remotely controversial. That gets saved for the records. I've found that I know less about who Janet Jackson is after doing this project. I feel like I had a better handle on who she might be as a person before I actually took the id of Janet Jackson in. That is an interesting uh, analysis. And because... All For You feels the least like Janet so far for me. Huh. And, and you know what? I, I, it may be. It may be because because smiles can lie. We don't know. I mean, she looks like she's ready to sell us that mattress, but we don't know what's in that mattress. right along one thing i love about discography is as i said we're going to skip over all the gossip so we're going to move right from the 2001 album all for you right into 2004's demita joe don't have to say a word about nipplegate and personally i for one am thrilled and hang hang on it's my boss i gotta take this hello no i'm not covering nipplegate i think i can tell the story of the records without the gossip it's not Nipplegate-ography, it's discography. Nipplegate is not on a record, therefore... You will? Okay, great. Um, okay, sorry about that interruption. I admit, I didn't want to talk about this. It was my hope that I'd do this series of discography much like I normally would, focusing on the albums only and letting them speak for themselves. However, Janet Jackson is a special case, and... One can't fairly talk about the albums that followed All For You fairly without discussing the implications of what came to be known as Nipplegate. So, pull up a chair. On February 1st, 2004, Janet Jackson became the reason that we've entered the words wardrobe malfunction into the English lexicon. 
The facts are that Janet was brought in to perform at that year's Super Bowl. She'd book in the event, opening the halftime set with All For You, and then P. Diddy, Nelly, and Kid Rock all did some tunes. And when Janet reappeared with a rendition of Rhythm Nation that seemed to have the whole stadium singing along, it was interrupted by a surprise appearance by Justin Timberlake. And on the very last beat, the very last song, after singing I'm Gonna Have You Naked by the end of this song, Justin Timberlake pulled off a part of Janet Jackson's costumes revealing her right breast, partially covered by a piece of nipple jewelry for less than one second. And there was absolute outrage and an opinion from every living person that even had a passing interest in sports, music, or even just entertainment in general. Jawad Karim, co-founder of YouTube, claims that the amount of people attempting to see footage of that fateful second partially inspired the very existence and development of YouTube itself. The FCC tried to fine CBS, the network which hosted the show, over a million dollars, which was a record at the time, and probably still is. Every late-night talk show host had just struck on monologue fodder for ages to come. Episodes of South Park and Family Guy were devoted to satirizing the situation. Howard Dean, who was running for president at the time, lambasted everyone for focusing so heavily on such a ludicrous backlash. The FCC cracked down on pretty much everything as best as they could as a result. Clear Channel, the company that owned around half the radio stations in the U.S. at the time, they blacklisted Janet as a result. Viacom blacklisted her as well, and they owned pretty much most of the radio stations that Clear Channel didn't own under the name Infinity Plus, CBS, and MTV. So her invitation to present and perform at the Grammys was rescinded. Disney removed a statue of Mickey Mouse wearing Janet's Rhythm Nation getup from their parks. She was about to star in a biopic about Lena Horne, but she was fired from the project. I tried really hard not to have an opinion about this, to just state the facts and move on. And to be honest with you, I hadn't even seen the show until I began work on this season of discography, and I'd never really had any feelings about the situation prior because, well, sports isn't really my thing, and I don't pay a ton of attention to gossip rags, and I just I just couldn't make myself care about Janet's breasts, nor was I so puritanical that I could feign shock. However, upon researching the event just as I would any of the albums I've talked about, I can't help but to admit complete and utter confusion at the outcome. I don't know, and I will never know what actually happened, accidental or purposeful, but what happened on stage is there forever, etched in stone, and replayable at anyone's behest. That said, Justin Timberlake is the one that yanked at her clothing, Janet was merely the recipient, and it pains me that Janet got the bulk of the brunt of the short end of the stick. In other words, it just kind of pissed me off in general. That a whole nation could lose its collective mind over a partially covered boob to the point that New Zealand is running news reports just to show how those wacky Americans were all in a tizzy about this, and they were right to do it. The reaction was unfair and uncalled for in my eyes, but as I'm a relative newcomer to having any opinion on the matter at all, I thought it best to get some other perspectives about Nipplegate. Captain Chris... Your take on Nipplegate, we know what happened, we've, we've seen the replays, we've heard the stories. What's your take on the complete overreaction of literally every human being on the planet? Um, <laughs> I, I guess the synopsis for it, or the, the short order answer would be just what you said. It, it was ridiculous, but, you know, admittedly so, my first reaction was like, damn it, I missed it, and I don't have teeth up. 
But <laughs> what I didn't realize was how much this internet culture was starting to like really blossom into you know what we would see now you know anything happens it's all over the place this is the first thing i remember being completely saturating the internet oh i've seen the video this that, and the other just people talking about it on whatever platforms and i mean there was no facebook or i don't even think there was a myspace barely at that point i don't even remember where i was finding these things out at aol chat rooms aol chat rooms probably <laughs> and different stuff like live journal and stuff like that and i remember i finally i saw the picture and when i saw the picture i was like all right cool Second of all, why is everybody flipping out so much? You know, like, if you're at the game, you can't see it at all. You know, it's like, she's so far away from everybody. It just looks like nothing. It was close on the screen. Granted, and whether it was a costume malfunction, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I, I can't say what it was, but I mean, I could tell you it was an overreaction. You know, that's how I felt about it at the time. And still to this day, I think it was an overreaction. It almost seems like the committee of people who do the Super Bowl almost has penalized people over the years based on that one incident because the, the, the halftime shows admittedly have never been the same since I'm not saying that they've gotten any better or worse because we've had some really great ones after that i.e prince but i'm just saying hey i am the world's well one of the world's biggest who fans and i can yeah. stand here in front of you and everybody and say that was not the best super bowl halftime like the who really should not have done that gig bring back janet yeah, and it was sort of like um, like the, the year after her was Paul McCartney, and while his was decent, it was really good. You know, like he played safe well. Safe as milk. It was safe. It was like, not that I'm, but nobody was looking for danger. It just appeared at our doorstep in the form of a breast, you know? And like, yeah, everybody's just like, oh, shocking, it's so shocking. It's like, I thought we had seen a lot of shocking things. Like, I can think of more shocking things in war documentaries. I can than think of Janet pictures King. where I've seen more of Janet's. Yeah, stuff. like, I mean, like, okay, and like, you had brought up the, the concept that the whole Dipplegate thing was predated by the Black Cat, you know, yeah. shirt reveal. Yeah, she uh, ripped open her shirt on the VMA. On the VMAs back in uh, 90, and ripped open the shirt and had the black bra. So, in a way, Janet Jackson has always been leading up to this. That's what I ended up telling you. It's like from the Black Cat incident to Renee Elizondo's hands on her breasts, you know, to the All For You album cover, you know, all the way down to Nipplegate. It was sort of like she was, she was gonna show you that boob. <laughs> So what you're saying is there was basically no way to avoid Nipplegate. Yeah, it was no going to happen at some point. Was, it was bound to happen. It was on the checklist, brother. She was like, fire dad. Get with Jam and Lewis. Show that boob. I'm just playing. <laughs> Let's talk about some ways that you can engage with discography. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help more people find out about our shows. Plus, we got lots of other great Consequence podcasts on the Consequence Podcast Network. There's This Must Be The Gig. There's Filmography. We got something for everybody. We got the Losers Club. There is so much here. So much here. And we're so happy to bring it to you. If you want to talk to us directly, facebook.com slash discography on CPN. 
that's the site to go to. Or you can uh, reach out to me on Twitter. On Twitter, I'm at MarkFi. That's M-A-R-C-F-I. As in there's Hi-Fi, Mid-Fi, Lo-Fi, and MarkFi. On Facebook, if you want to reach out directly to me, I'm Facebook.com slash MarkWithACMusic. I've been making lo-fi pop records for years and years and years. You can check them out at markwithac.com. You can order them at markwithac.bandcamp.com slash merch in case you want to get them on vinyl, compact disc, cassette, etc. Also, if you want to support me and my upcoming creative endeavors, oh man, I would be so thrilled if you did it. Patreon.com slash markwithac. It works like a monthly tip jar. For as little as a dollar a month, you get all kinds of perks every month, up to and including episodes of my other podcast, The Real Congregation. That's patreon.com slash M-A-R-C-W-I-T-H-A-C. All right. We talked about some plugs. We talked about the rating and reviewing. We talked about Nipplegate. I hope you're happy. And now we're going to move on to the album Demita Joe, which came out in March of 2004 on Virgin Records. I've been studying these Janet Jackson albums on two different formats. Got each album on wax, as I've mentioned, but I also give it a spin on a digital platform like Spotify when I'm on the go or whatever. Demita Joe is an album that absolutely deserves your attention on vinyl, if you like the cut of vinyl's jib, of course, because it comes on two discs and it really does feel like a double album two different statements done in 10 tracks each. And when you keep in mind that this album took 18 months to make, there are a bevy of new producers on board along with Jam and Lewis, and Janet had the entire weight of the world come crashing down on her shoulders midway through the sessions courtesy of Nipplegate, it is one rightfully unfocused record. And unfocused isn't a diminutive statement, mind you, it merely is. In prior records, Janet has tackled intimacy, personal empowerment, racism, you name it. She's kind of already done it by now, especially dancing. A lot of freaking songs about dancing, but in Demita Joe, she intended to tackle herself. And what a time to pick to do such a thing. I mean, with Janet, you can watch nearly any interview and you can tell that there's quite a wall up, an airtight protective shell that doesn't leak much, if any, of her personal self through. But Demita Joe posits the conundrum, what if Janet Jackson is numerous people all rolled into one body? And this is explored early on in the album. Title track, right out of the gate, lyrics like, do you think I'm that person you watch on TV, delivered in a sultry and seductive lilt with a restrained and brassy funk underscore, Janet is all too aware of the difference between what we receive and who she actually is and who can blame her. Janet Jackson, she's busy bringing joy to millions, but an alter ego like Demita Joe, based on her middle name? Demita is happy to give you whatever, if you can penetrate the coy shyness, of course. We 
get a quick diversion in Sex Exhibition produced by Dallas Austin, who's a veteran record producer who produced Motown hits as well as tracks by Gwen Stefani, Madonna, TLC, Pink, and many more. The song slams itself right into your consciousness, sounding like nothing we've heard yet in Janet's catalog. Even those trademark harmonies are hitting blends that aren't commonly heard on her records. But for me in the first half, our highlight comes when we meet Strawberry and the aptly titled Strawberry Bounce. tracks that feature Kanye West either behind the boards or on the track itself, but the feel and melody of this one cuts right through as the most instantly memorable Janet track since the title cut of All For You. Meanwhile, Strawberry as a persona seems to be a lot like the hypersexual narrators in some of Janet's more explicit material, but now there's a personality where she can really cut loose instead of worrying about the connotations of any given word, scenario, or desire that might be attached to having come out of Janet Jackson's mouth. Strawberry can whisper motherfucker and not think twice about it, while Janet might be a little more shy. I mean, if I'm reading this right, but seriously, Strawberry Bounds, what a jam. Now, in case you were on the edge of your seat waiting for me to talk about Kanye, look no further than the follow-up cut called My Baby. It's a mid-tempo song that serves as a nice cool-down from the relentless first LP side of Demita Joe. And hearing the song of 2018 years, you can't help but remember Kanye first and foremost on this track, but I wonder if that was the case back in 2004 when Demita Joe initially dropped out of the sky onto an unsuspecting public while fighting all the blacklisting. There's an unexpected detour in cuts like Island Life as Janet ruminates on her love of tropical paradises and that spreads out over a few slower jams and interludes until the first half wraps up with a dance floor killer, All Night Don't Stop which clearly would have been the Runaway Smash single if the blacklisting had never occurred. This track in particular hits on so many styles and what initially might seem like another phoned-in dance tune, but nope, you've got hints of grime, dancehall, ambient techno, salsa. It's a really forward-thinking and hyper-aware song on a musical front, but it's a testament to the song's power that even though it wasn't getting much airplay due to the, um situation that it still cracked Billboard's top 40 and made it to number 8 on the dance charts and that's no mean feat for a song you probably didn't hear unless you bought the album it was on but that second half it kicks off with R&B Junkie it really does feel like the less focused second disc of any bloated double album you can name and that's not to say that this album is bloated because it isn't and it even clocks in at about 10 minutes shorter than most of the last five or so records, but that change is so apparent when the feel changes directions as soon as this song kicks in. There's still lyrical themes that continue from the first half and are certainly expounded on later, but the alter egos aren't focused on so much, unless they've all combined into Janet, in which case, yeah, this really should be heard in a double disc format like the vinyl edition. 
but a rather jarring shift still occurs otherwise. And oh, don't even get me started on that classic soul feel on the Kanye West and John Legend penned I Want You. heading off into a completely different direction now, musically, while Janet's voice continues the sort of do-what-you-want-with-me that, spoiler alert, is going to completely take this album over. Case in point is the following track where, over an assuming beat, Janet implores her lover through an internal dialogue to do me like you want to do them other girls. Instead of squeezing thoughts like these into their own controversial moments, Janet is starting to spread them into almost half the record, which is pretty smart. And it makes Like You Don't Love Me seem positively edgy and daring in Janet's catalog, but its placement on the record tells the listener that it's merely a preparation, and maybe even a warning shot. Because we drop back into balladry for the seemingly unconnected but still plenty enjoyable thinking about my ex, and it's a track that seems like it's going to kick off a row of slow jams. You know, this album's Quiet Storm. And while it's not easy subject matter to tell your current lover that you're fantasizing about a previous lover every time you're touched, it's positively safe compared to what Wikipedia refers to as the oral suite. So for a track like Moist, the narrator is on the receiving end, and she's surprisingly articulate for someone in such a position, I must admit but it's also a classic slow jam of the Jackson, Jam, and Lewis variety, making the song a guaranteed crowd-pleaser no matter what she's singing about, but hey, I'm not going to pretend it isn't effectively hot as hell. And our narrator returns the favor and warmth, but also in a moving vehicle. And come on, fantasies are all good and fun, but safety first, right? Now, these graphic tracks are like an extension of any time, any place, but it's clear that these aren't one-offs. No one-night stands or quick and dirty PDAs to be found. We're reminded that this is all just a reflection of the affection that these two characters have for each other in the beautifully stripped-down song called Truly, which has such engrossing production that it took me a few listens to realize the only rhythmic sounds were mostly just a snapping finger, a triangle, and the occasional chimes. When you near my There's a track called Slow Love, spelled S-L-O-L-O-V-E, but all kind of crammed together as one word, but it's deceptively titled anyways. It kicks the tempos back up a notch, but still plays with those same retro vibes that have been present since R&B Junkie in the second half, still managing to be mixing a little jazz into its deep house beat. And like many of the tunes here, there's at least five writers working on this song, but the cooks come up with another stellar chorus that reminds you of every reason that you might have ever liked Janet in the first place, and we wrap it up with a track called Just a Little While, which is another Dallas-Austin-driven tune, and despite being a pretty crackin' pop song, 
it absolutely does not fit next to anything we've heard here, and it frankly comes off a bit like a bonus track. Not B-side territory or anything so dire, and again I remind you, don't get me started on the B-sides. But this song, just a little while, it's kind of out of place and a really confounding ending in the flow department. Now importantly, the story goes that the track Just A Little While was maybe going to be the first single, and it got leaked to radio somehow. And Janet said in an interview that it kind of rearranged their entire promotional strategy for Demita Joe, but at the same time, if there was a media blacklist happening, and Infinity Broadcasting wasn't playing it, and Clear Channel wasn't playing it, which radio station did it get leaked to? I still don't really know, and I don't understand, but despite that jarring ending, Demita Joe is a wonderfully comforting album, but it's still not the most focused record, and that makes it just ever so slightly lesser than the five preceding albums. But there's so much familiarity here that anyone can walk right in and find something to like or even love, and the only reason that I can even come up with as to why Demita Joe isn't more widely known is that pesky and completely unfair blacklist following that Super Bowl kerfuffle. I mean, since it, get this, since Demita Joe only moved around a million copies in America, it was seen as a disappointment within the industry. The same industry that nearly made the album impossible to promote and actively tried to crush her. And that's the highest praise that you can hand Demita Joe. It's overall such a good and musically fun album that it still ended up in at least a million American households, despite every possible odd working against her here. No touring, no promotional live appearances, and no real hit singles to speak of. That said, while every song is individually quite good, the premise is a bit thin, and it kind of comes off like a slightly less successful take on Tori Amos' American Doll Posse album, but only in theme, because when you get right down to the content and ignore the linkage, Demita Joe is almost as strong as anything that preceded it. Its major shortcoming is that it's every bit as confused as the climate that it was born into. about the high points that I see in Demita Joe and also the lack of focus that I see in Demita Joe. Uh, Janet claimed at the time that this was representative of many of her personalities, like there can be a personality named Strawberry. Um, now, Tori Amos had just done this with American Doll Posse just a couple years earlier, and she stuck with it for the whole record. Janet doesn't really stick with it on this record. No, it seems to like kind of come in and then kind of fade out. Like it was a sort of an idea and then it got kind of like abandoned later. So with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis being sort of a little bit muscled out on this record, you get different producers and whatnot. What do you make of Demita Joe? I mean, we all know, I mean, you've heard us say numerous times in this series that there's a Holy Quinn trilogy. Yeah. So... What is your take on Demita Joe? Demita Joe does not make it in the quintrilogy. That's what I say. <laughs> but no, when it comes to Demita Joe, yeah, like I agree with you. There are some strong jams on there. I like the Strawberry Bounce, um, R&B Junkie, and that might just be because I love the sample that they use. You know, like sometimes, like you know, Janet has always been good with like the songs that have like decent 
banging samples from the past that like she takes to another level like your rhythm nations or you know even if had like samples of the supremes in there and all that stuff all for you sample change this samples evelyn champagne king all night don't stop was another one i enjoyed thinking about my ex um decent you know but like it, it's definitely not one of the ones like the others and if you got to compare them to the others yeah it, it kind of falls a little flat and maybe that could be due to the pressures of nipplegate it could be well, like whatever was going on prior or, or or after said incident it seems like the muscling out of jam and lewis might have been to the detriment of the record. Now, I'm never gonna say it's a good idea to muscle out Jam and Lewis. You know, by and the I'm, way, Jam and Lewis, if you're listening, you're free to come muscle me out of my own records. Indeed, indeed, please, by all means, uh, yes, uh, Jam and Lewis, uh, just come over and hang out with me. That's all I want. But, um, <laughs> I, and I think of them really as a trio of producers. I think Jam Lewis Jackson, you know, I think the three of them work well together like they always have and you yeah know, i mean you you bring up a good point because there's not a lot of jam and lewis that you hear outside of janet's work where you go that's clearly jam and lewis yeah she like, does have that extra component that she brings indeed indeed like you know for a while like for a while like in the 80s i would say in the 80s they had a zenith that they had a sound that okay that's the jam and lewis sound so if you would hear it with like Thelma houston or like some of these other like kind of like lesser known r&b bands you would hear sort of like the the inklings of the minneapolis sound but when they got with janet that's when it like clicked hard like this is our sound. Of course, do you know that Joe gave them one specific request? Yeah, I know the request. <laughs> Don't, Don't make her sound, sound like, like Prince. Prince. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure, and like, and they, good job. They did a good job saying like, if you think about the time when Control was being made, that's like some point in 1985, right? So Prince is around. Prince is hanging around making, like, you know, parade probably, you know? So the city's just going off, and I'm sure, like, I'm sure Prince is around here somewhere, you know? Like, like why is Janet Jackson in town, you know? So let's negativate the positive, okay. uh, to coin a phrase here. Um, am I coining a phrase? I don't know. I don't let's, know. let's do it. <laughs> We're pretty much at the ass end of this episode, but I don't feel like we've said all that much positive in the episode about Janet. So this is basically your gotcha question. Okay. I'm throwing you into the lion's den here. Throw me in there. What we got? All right. Demita Joe is blacklisted by Clear Channel Communications. It is blacklisted by Infinity Broadcasting, yeah. which is Clear Channel's competitor. So yeah. most radio stations can't play this album. Now, she claims that Just a Little While got leaked to radio, and well, yeah. I don't really buy that, because how can you leak it to stations that aren't going to play you? But, hey, manufactured controversy never really hurt anybody. She's uh, blacklisted by Viacom in general, but they also own CBS, they own MTV. Viacom yeah. owns entertainment television in general. So, you know that, and you just got hired as the guy who's got to figure out how to sell Demita Joe, how oh, would you do it? Under, under that, how do you sell this record? How do I sell the record, like, to the radio people? In general, because in I was trying to come up with what I would have done different, but it seems so unwinnable. 
See, yeah, like, you know, like, without bringing controversy into it, like, it's hard to sell it. But at the same time, it's still a Janet Jackson record, so it is of some sort of decent quality, you know? So I would just be like, just fresh off the presses, that new Demita Joe, y'all, that new Janet Jackson, you know? She had, you know, it's like, you know, you saw what she did earlier in the year, now let's see what she got to say about it. You know, it's almost something like that. Like, I would almost bring up the controversy almost in small order. I would not, like, shine on it too hard. But I wouldn't let it be known that she is a controversial figure, and the controversial figure just came out with a new album. And just the fact that, like, the cover is like this, is sort of like, all right, you kind of playing on it a little bit, you know, like, or at least a person would assume that. Uh, if you've never seen the cover of Demita Joe, well, I'm not sure how you got this deep into episode three, but she's covering up her breasts, but appears to be naked. Yeah. So it looks like a direct reference to Nibblegate. Yep, and smiling, happy about it. And she's using the middle name, you know, that's the name of the album. And she initially uh, wanted to release this album apparently under only the name Demita Joe, not even have the name Janet on it at all, <laughs> which weirdly, I don't know that it would have done much worse. Worldwide, it sold like four million records, and in the U.S., despite that blacklist, it still made it over a million copies, which is nothing to sniff at, because this is like three years after downloading just killed True. everything. This is, this is 2004, right? Yeah. So, yeah, this is that's remarkable a million at that point. Like, it's stunning how well it did. Yeah while also not being recommendable. So it also couldn't travel by word of mouth. Indeed. Like like we were saying, you know, like the weirdness of that year, 2004, also probably comes into play. You know, we were talking about that earlier, how like 2004 was kind of a weird sort of year for music. Yes, what I put forth, uh, dear listener, was that if you remember what you and all your friends were listening to and what you think was super hot in 2004, make a list of that and then go look up what the actual biggest selling things of that year are and find out that... It wasn't that. <laughs> you were not nearly... You didn't have your finger on the pulse. Did not have your finger on the pulse, not by one stretch, you know? And with that being said, a lot of things probably got lost in the shuffle, and this album to sell a million is still pretty remarkable. Like, showing that, you know, her fan base is still out there. They're still gunning for her and stuff. And, you know, like, of course, you always have the, like, Jackson fan that'll just buy everything like that they put out you know and you know they support so i think through that she got by but like it definitely wasn't the strongest effort and that's where we're gonna cut it this week gonna take a little time out but don't worry we're coming right back next week episode four and we are kicking off talking about the album 20yo and trust me when i say i think me and captain chris have plenty to say about that album captain chris is in a group named crystal brains campaign crystalbrainscampaign.bandcamp.com to hear their first single mental love affair big thank you to him for coming by and thank you in advance for coming by next week Discography is a production of Consequence Podcast Network. It's recorded and engineered and all that good stuff by me, Mark with a C, right here in Orlando, Florida, in my freaking house, because I work out of the house. It's a little cottage industry. Thanks so much for affording me the chance to do such a thing. Our background music is provided by Chris Zabriskie. You can check him out at chriszabriskie.com. The theme that we use as the intro and outro, that's also Chris Zabriskie. The tune's called Air Hockey Saloon, and you can find it on his killer album, Vendaface. I'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. I can't wait to see you next time. Until then, take care, my friends.
Consequence Podcast Network.